You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily represent those of the network, its advertisers, owners, or sponsors. Good afternoon, and welcome to Conversations and Meditations. I'm your host, Virgil Varix. Today is May 12th, uh, Saturday, and let's get started with the show. So today, I have a few friends with me today. I have my good friend, Misha, and my good friend, Sudo. Uh, how you guys doing today? Doing good. Can't complain. Just fine. Hell yeah, hell yeah. Great, great. All right, cool. So today's show, just to give a brief outline and a brief description of what we're going to be talking about today. It's going to be mostly focused on anxiety and depression, how it affects our lives every every day, you know, in the everyday sense, how it affects our lives in the philosophical sense, how it affects our lives, you know, through the emotions we feel. So first, I'd like to get to a few definitions, you know, how the show goes. Uh, first, like define the terms so we understand what we're talking about, that we can have uh, the discussion go on. So depression is, uh, you know, it's more than just sadness. You know, people with depression may lack, you know, uh, may have a lack of interest. You may experience a lack of interest and pleasure in, in daily activities in their lives. Um, they might gain weight significantly or lose weight significantly. You know, insomnia or uh, excessive sleeping might be uh, a factor. Lack of energy, inability to concentrate, feelings of uh, worthlessness, you know, excessive guilt and shame. And uh, you know, these thoughts could even go to thoughts of death or suicide. And uh, for anxiety – you know, it's it's more of an emotion characterized by feelings of tension, worried thoughts, and physical changes like increased blood pressure. You know, your heart's pounding out of your chest. You know, people with anxiety disorders usually have intrusive thoughts or concerns. This may uh, avoid certain situations. They may they may avoid certain situations out of worry, and they might stop themselves from pursuing activities and opportunities that might might be better for them. So they uh, they have these physical symptoms such as you know trembling, sweatiness, uh, dizziness, rapid heartbeat. So that's basically what we're going to be talking about today and uh, how it affects us. So yeah, um, what do you guys think of just the the basic outline and the basic uh, understanding of what I just stated? Do you guys agree with that? Do you guys have a different interpretation of the way you guys look at it? Um, I mean, I pretty much agree with that. Cool. I think each one is oh, each one is like a form of a different like emotion, like a more extreme, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. depression, for example. It's the extreme version of sadness mm. because, like, it's physically impacting you. Mm. Okay, good, good. Yeah, so, and, like, and same thing for anxiety, like you said before, with physical symptoms, you know? So I think, yeah, you were pretty nail on with it. Okay, cool, great. 
You agree with that, Misha? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I just like to thank you for having yeah. me and Sudo on. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, thank really you. looking forward to our conversation <laughs> course, today. Yeah. I, I definitely agree with those uh, general descriptions of depression, anxiety, how they're different, but also um, can overlap to some extent. And I think I believe you were giving the American Psychological Association mm-hmm. sort exactly. of definitions yep. there, which exactly. I think are you know generally accurate. I wouldn't agree with everything that organization of says, course, of perhaps, course. but yep. um, when it comes to this particular thing, I think you're spot on. Okay, cool, great. So yeah, I mean, so to most of today's conversation, at least for what I'm coming from today, guys, is going to be focused from you know my personal experience, my point of view, and the way I kind of saw myself. While I was like in a deep bout of depression versus – so I mean versus like uh, a more of a functioning depressive. <laughs> so I think there's a difference between the two. I think when a person is depressed, they can either be at a point of uh, point of their life where they are just completely unable to go out and do things. They're just completely withdrawing. They're just completely not in involved with life or even existence itself. They're just in their own – world and sometimes they do that for, through escapism, through movies, through TV, through uh, – there's this great movie, uh, The Purple Rose of Cairo. I think it's by Woody Allen and it came out – I think uh, Jeff Daniels is in it and a big part of the movie takes place uh, that's during the depression and a lot of people left you know, society and would go to the movies and just escape to get away from what was going on in the external reality. So I think people will end up doing that and withdraw. And now we have, you know, social media and we have uh, all different types of avenues to get this type of escapism. So what do you, what do you guys think of, of trying to figure out the, the underpinnings of this? Because I think the, 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 I, the need to escape this reality and go into another is like an essential part of depression. Would you guys agree with that? Um, so I think like one thing, like, Escaping, like, sometimes is a healthy form of, like, dealing with your stress. Mm. But I think the key thing is, like, balancing it out, Mm -hmm. you know, because sometimes, yeah, you have a rough day. You need to grab a beer and, like, watch Game of Thrones, you know. Yes, 100%. Or, but, like, in some cases, though, like, take me, for example, sometimes, like, I put stuff, like, instead of, like, doing work that I need to do or something, I'll just lay in bed and, like, watch my anime shows, Mm -hmm. you know. Or, like, I'm just on Facebook or stuff like that. And I think it's to the point if you let it distract you from, like, what you need to get done in, like, reality. Mm, okay. That, like, it becomes a problem. So the, the point where it stops you from being a outstanding individual in society, going to work, taking care of your business, paying your bills, you know, talking to the people you need to talk to, being friendly and lovely with the people you need to be with. Is that where the line is or does the line go to some different area? I think um, it's part of that line mm-hmm. too. But also like if like, for example, me, like mm-hmm. I got to clean my room, clean yep. my car, you know, yep. get stuff organized. Yep. Like I think it's easy to like do the big stuff sometimes because it's like, okay, I just go to work, clock in, bam, I'm done. But it's kind of like once you get through with work, like something that can help like make your life a little bit better. Are you doing that? And if it's like, like me, I go home, I go to bed and like I'm on Facebook all the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Like I'm sure uh, my um, friend here, Misha, has seen me like in my room with a, 
um, flash of light just on, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, and that, that's because we're roommates, not lovers. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, sorry, clarification. Please. Sorry, clarification. <laughs> no, but I think I think Pseudo makes a great point um, with regard to balance. Everything in life is balanced. Too much of anything, even if it's, you know, too much of spending time with your family, something that is innocent and seen as healthy. Too much of anything is is uh is bad so life is all about balance and i think for me you know especially you know as someone who works from home a lot um it's easy to fall into a trap of you know getting focused on one thing whether it's you know a book a movie a tv show you know i think our generation is you know the netflix generation is is very prone to um just kind of uh mindless activity which you know, as as Sudo said, it has its place and there are times where you can relax. But as long as you achieve that healthy balance – and that's been a struggle for me. You know, I think it's uh, – the you know, to achieve that balance, I think routine is important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, having a daily routine. I think getting up early, going – there's a real – I think there's something really healthy about going to bed early and getting up early. Whether it's, you know, going – saying I'm going to be asleep by midnight and up by 7 – Mm. And get get some stuff done before work. You know, I think getting stuff done before 10 a.m. <laughs> is a good idea. Oh, yeah. Uh, or before whenever you have to go to work. That's um, a good maxim, yeah. I like that. So that, for me, that's worked personally. That's good. No, I think I think that everything you guys said is relevant and I think it's all, it's all uh, very true and it all points to the fact that, you know, especially in today's culture, mental health is, you know, stigmatized and there's a lot of misunderstandings about – how we look at it, you know, uh, is it something of weakness? Is it something of um, distress? Is it something of uh, – is it a psychological, you know, mental uh, – meaning chemical imbalance in the brain? Is it your worldview? You know, so cultures and, and, and people around the world and people in this country all have different opinions on what mental health is and they stigmatize it in their own ways. But there has been tremendous um, – uh, Success in in destigmatizing this. I mean, the ability for all of us to sit here today and talk about this is awesome. The ability for people to listen to this and talk about, and you know, then eventually go and talk about this stuff shows that the destigmatization of mental health and uh, issues like depression and anxiety are becoming, you know, much more, you know, quote unquote household names. These things are much more real because you know a person with this, somebody you love, somebody you care about, your mother, your brother, your sister. It affects everybody, you know, and personally with me, you know, depression is something that's um, been within my family as well as anxiety uh, disorders. And, um, you know, the, the one thing I can I can see is is that, uh, yeah, you know, obviously there, when, when you see this type of stuff throughout your family and you know multiple people, like, okay, this is kind of a hint that this might have some hereditary issues here. You know, there might be some hereditary, you know, consequences towards having depression. But um, – you know, when you talk about hereditability and some people like to look at this stuff and point at fatalism and just being fatalistic, like, oh, this is the way it's going to be. This is the way it is. And, you know, according to um, twin studies and, and some some things like that, when we talk about personality traits, when we talk about the, the hereditability factor, you know, the genetic information research shows that, you know, um, openness to – so the five – the big five personality traits, openness – uh, extroversion, conscientiousness, neuroticism, and agreeableness. And uh, so openness to experience, they've estimated that 57% of genetic influence is caused to that. Extroversion, being more extroverted, 54%. 
conscientiousness, 49%. Neuroticism, 48%. Agreeableness, 42%. So what does this tell me? This tells me that roughly it's, you know, take the average of all that, it's 50-50. So that's great. That's good news. It's not bad news. You know, it's, it's, it's compared to the de- deterministics and Determinists and people who view this stuff, there is a lot of leeway that we can do as individuals to make changes in our lives, especially with the big one, neuroticism, you know, negative feelings, negative emotions. It's 48. It's the second lowest in terms of heritability. So we can do a lot to change our, our outlook and our, our point of view. I think one thing that I would like to say is that I feel like, um, as you were talking, like the stigma behind like depression, anxiety, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. people don't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes people feel like, oh, it's my fault for feeling this way. Mm-hmm. And like that makes me weak. Cause like that's how I felt growing mm-hmm. up, mm-hmm. you know? Like I would always hear my dad say, oh, when I was your age, I didn't have time to be depressed mm-hmm. and stuff yep. like that, you <laughs> yeah. know? Heard that before. And like as a man, you know, like that's weak. Mm. And like, thing I've heard. yeah, it's not your fault for feeling the way that you feel. Of course not. But it is your fault if you don't take action to like help yourself get out of that situation. Exactly. That's a great, great point. I'm happy you put that you put that out there because um, if you don't have the will to act, nothing will change. If you don't have the will to make things different, nothing will change. Misha, go ahead. Well, I agree with that. I think that people. Do need to muster the the strength to try. Um, at the same time, I think depression is can be such a deeply rooted problem in people that you know it's tough to blame people who are so clinically depressed mm-hmm. that they can't muster that energy. And I yeah. think that you know the first step to a lot of these things. I want to say. I mean, I, I don't mean to. S- Earlier, I don't mean I didn't mean to say that finding a routine or finding balance is the end all be all cure no, of depression. Of course, I think the course, first yeah. step is obviously to seek medical help, mm-hmm. yeah. probably Great through point. a psychologist, yeah. yep. uh, you know, or Scientology. No, not, not really. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> uh, uh, no, through actual an actual like of medical course, professional. Of um, so I think um, you know. If you're clinically depressed, that's the first step. I personally have not mm-hmm. experienced clinical depression. I've mm-hmm. been told that, you know, I have mild depression mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. bouts of depression, but mm-hmm. nothing, you know, suicidal or anything on that level. But, um, yeah, that's obviously, I think, the first step. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a super important point. I mean, anytime you have any type of, um, feeling, uh, about yourself, about your worth, about your overall, um, inability to to find meaning in life. I think you should kind of look at it from, you know, if your leg is hurting you, you're going to go to the doctor. You know, if uh, any any part of your body is hurting you, you're going to go to the doctor because it's it's for your own benefit. It's only for your own good. Um, but in reality, most people look at their symptoms of depression, and it's very interesting. Um, people who are who are chronically depressed are also chronically in pain most of the time. And those two things are are heavily correlated and connected, um, and because you know you might you might end up getting some psychosomatic effects that won't allow your body to actually heal and have the ability to to regenerate tissue and uh, all this other stuff that you can do when you're. So this this has a a pretty deep effect, more so than just on our everyday uh, mental outlook. It has an effect on our bodies as well. And it, it, I mean, uh, p- speaking from my own personal experience, you know, something with depression, at least, um, you know, seven, eight years ago, something that was very, very common was that through depression, 
you, we try to find things, you know, to to give us a little boost of serotonin or, or dopamine in the moment. So it might be drugs, it might be alcohol. For me, it was, you know, at the time when I was most depressed, it was drugs, alcohol, and food. So every vice you can possibly think of, you know, when you talk about the sin of gluttony, it's, you know, you're drinking a lot, you're, you're doing a lot of drugs, and you're, you're, you're eating a lot of food. You know, and, and the problem with me at a certain point of my life was that I was using alcohol, I was using food to be a band-aid for my problems rather than actually looking at my problems and trying to break it down. I was looking at a way to actually put a band-aid, put a cover on them. In, cognitively, it was, it, was a, it was a shield to shield myself from reality. So that's kind of what happened to me and those were kind of my, my vices. Yeah, absolutely, Virgil. I, I think – and go, just tracking uh, – backtracking a little bit yeah, yes. to the physical symptoms. I just want to mention that I think that's part of uh, sort of the stigmatization mm. and um, you know incorrect perceptions of depression that a lot of people have is they don't under, understand how it can really manifest itself in total physical pain throughout your body. Yeah. And, you know, effects like, you know, throwing up or, mm -hmm. you know, things like that. So I think that's, that's one of the things that though society, I think, is starting to come, a f come for a, a longer way along the lines of destigmatizing depression and making it more normalized and making it more comfortable for people to be open about it. People still don't fully understand how far the symptoms can go and how, mental health is really tied to physical health and how, you know, it's just like having a broken leg or, mm. you know, it's, it's literally, it's something that serious and people need to take it that seriously. So, um, those are my two cents there. I just wanted no, to throw I, in. I think, I think it's perfect. Sudo. I don't really have anything to add on that okay, point. Great, I think great. you guys had it pretty much covered. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, when it comes to anxiety, you know, the other thing we, we, we talk, we're going to talk about today, you know, the big question with anxiety is like, what am I afraid of? You know, that's the thing. What am I afraid of? Um, you know, uh, chronic anxiety, at least to me, means that something needs to change. When I'm having chronic bouts of anxiety, that means that there's something within my, within my subconscious that is, warning me that whatever I'm doing in my current current experience is not necessarily for the benefit of my character. Now, I'm not saying this is all the time. I'm saying this is something that I've experienced. So um, and anxiety, sometimes anxiety is great. You know, anxiety keeps you away from the, the lion that's down the road right over there. Anxiety keeps you away from, you know, jumping into situations foolheartedly rather than, you know, more, you know, risk averse, you know, more risk calculated and and more uh, concise with your with your plans. So when it comes when, when I say when I, when I say I have or have had bouts with anxiety, what I really mean, at least to myself, is that I am afraid of outcomes and consequences that I have not done anything to do to cause or happen yet. None none of these things have happened. All my worries, all my anxiety, none of this has happened yet. But I am purposely allowing this, you know, I'm looking at a, I'm looking too far in the future. And, you know, it might be two minutes too far in the future. You know, when you want to go into a social at, you know, environment, you go to a party and you want to go say hi to somebody, you go introduce yourself to a girl and like, you're going to walk up. But before you walk up, you already imagine how shitty it's going to go. 
or how bad it's going to go. And um, it's it really is uh, a killer. And you go there and you don't know what to say and then boom, you know, it is as bad. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Anxiety leads to self-fulfilling prophecies in your in your behavior and your action. I agree with that. And I think actually like anxiety and depression kind of go hand in hand a mm. little bit. That's, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. At That's least from like my experience, like one of the big things that causes my anxiety for me is like fear of failure. Mm. And I, I think that might be true for a lot of people is that we have a lot of self-doubt in ourselves. And sometimes we tend to overthink it. Like when I started my new job and stuff, mm -hmm. I would get serious bouts of like anxiety, like where like I didn't want to get out of bed. And I was just like, screw it, you know, like maybe I'll quit, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know. But then kind of life sets in and you're like, I got to pay the bills and stuff. And I think sometimes like at least what I had to do was kind of just work through it. Yeah. And like you were saying, anxiety, like it teaches you like, oh, there's a lion down the road. Like, don't be dumb. Mm -hmm. But I think sometimes, like, when it hinders you from doing big stuff, you just kind of, at least for me, I had to kind of, like, walk through it. Yes. And it wasn't, like, an overnight process of, like, working through it. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, like, day by day. Mm -hmm. And I'm still not even there. Like, Yeah, man, same here. Yeah, Tell sometimes, like, I'll get these things where, like, I'm like, okay, I can't move. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to move. Mm -hmm. Like, I need to stay here, mm -hmm. calm down. Mm -hmm. And I find that sometimes... Thinking logically like, okay, if this is the worst that's going to happen, then let it happen because mm. there's nothing that I can do. Mm. You know, then I think also like for my fears of like failure, you yes. know, I think it's knowing that like nobody's perfect. Yep. Nobody expects you to be perfect. You know, like you can keep trying to be perfect. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think the big thing that helped me was that even if I fall down, I know that I'll always have people that love me mm. and that I can rely on mm. to help me out. That's good. And I think this also goes back to what Misha was saying about, like, if you're suffering from depression, to find help, like medical help. Mm. You know, speak to a psychiatrist. Even speak to friends or family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes nobody wants to feel vulnerable, you oh, know. Yeah. Nobody wants to feel like the loser or mm -hmm. stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I feel like you kind of just have to throw all of that aside and just be honest. That's a good point. I like that. I think Sudo's making multiple great points here. And the first I would echo is um, that, you know, combating anxiety is a process. It's something that's never fully completed or you're never done with. You can never um, be assured that you'll never have a panic attack again or anything. <laughs> but you every day you try to to – do the things that will be healthy for you to try to minimize that anxiety and um, so you can live your life. And the second thing that I'd love to echo is, you know, just the pressures of the workplace, especially in our generation. I think millennia, you know, this has been called the renting generation and the generation that's going to make less money than our parents for the first time ever and kind of how, um, you know, the American dream might not necessarily be dying, but it's uh, being hoarded by, you know, the previous generation, uh, just to throw shade a little bit. But <laughs> I, I, there was this interesting article that I read in Current Affairs called Why Millennials Are the Way They Are. And I just want to share like a few statistics from this article that sort of point to why, um, you know, us specifically in our generation more broadly might be experiencing anxiety and 
that includes that the proportion of people working, you know, 50 hour work weeks has increased. Americans are more sleep deprived than ever before. And, um, you know, there's con there's stagnant wages, constant competition, um, more pressure to get additional credentials. You know, mm -hmm. what used to be, um, a BA job is now you need a master's, what mm -hmm. you used to need a master's for now you need a PhD. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, contrary to stereotypes about millennials, they're actually just as productive, if not more productive than previous generations. But because wages are stagnant and not keeping up with the productivity, we're seeing this big gap um, between, um, you know, the effort that they're put that people are putting in and mm -hmm. what they're getting out of it. So um, I think that, you know, a lot of millennials feel trapped and they feel pressured financially. And that is, um, I think, the largest proximate cause of anxiety in, in, uh, in our generation today. Hmm, that's good. I like that. I like that. Uh, do you have anything to say, Sudo, to that? Um, I mean, I agree. Like, cause I mean, I think I've experienced some of this stuff, like mm -hmm. myself, as both of you guys know, like I work two jobs mm -hmm. and like before during the winter time, I was working like 70 hour, 80 hour weeks mm -hmm. between two jobs, mm -hmm. which was tough because you have, especially cause I'm in the customer service industry. Yes. And so it's like, I have to deal with people all day, every day. Mm -hmm. And you don't think like, oh, it's going to drain a lot of my energy, but it does. And then by the time like you get home, you're tired and exactly. then you let your personal life get out of hand and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely agree that like sometimes it's a bit too much with exactly. the, um, and you lose less sleep and it's kind of like a vicious cycle, honestly. Mm -hmm. yeah, and so, again, that's why I say like that's when you have to make time for yourself and like. Put yourself as the first priority instead of worrying about like putting your jobs first, exactly. which is easier said than done. Exactly, but. and sometimes and sometimes there is a correlation between putting yourself first and putting your job first. Sometimes that that tends to happen, but it really depends on what is your goals. Because if we don't have, so the way I kind of look, the way I kind of look at it is, if if I have goals, so let's say I have a goal. Yeah, I'm not gonna say a five year plan, but let's say I have a plan that's. Um, that I have in my mind. So, you know, a few a year ago was graduating. How am I going to do this? I had, uh, you know, a plan of how I'm going to attack certain semesters, certain classes, ones that are more business oriented, ones that are more oriented on, you know, uh, theory rather than actual like empirical work. So I, I had to create a plan. And once I was able to create a plan, I was able to find meaning in that plan. Even though I wasn't able to hang out with as many people as I wanted to, I had to sacrifice um, the ability to even develop some uh, relationships, uh, some close relationships with certain people. I had to kind of leave those away because I knew it would take me away from my goal. So sometimes I feel like we don't want to be we don't want to be tyrannical to ourselves. We don't want to we don't want to be a, a dictator to ourselves. We want to negotiate with ourselves, and I think that's the most important thing. Finding you know, putting terms out for yourself, saying to yourself, hey, am I able to negotiate with myself today? Am I, am I, are you going to listen to me? And, you know, you're, you're going to find out uh, sooner or later that, you know, you're not very easily negotiable. 
you're going to find out that you're not very easily convinced by some of your higher aspirations, some of where your where your goals are and where you want to actually be. So it's going to be a constant, like you guys said, a constant fight, a constant struggle between yourself to figure out what I want to do and how much am I willing to sacrifice to do it. So like you said, you know, working 70 hours, 80 hours, it's, it's ridiculously long hours. You're killing yourself. And I commend you for for sticking with it as long as you did and, and doing as much oh, as you did. You don't stuff. need to commend me. No, no. Me. I mean, really, I do because a lot of people would have quit and have totally ended that much earlier than uh, anybody. And I would have thought anybody would. So you really showed yourself that you could, you know, sacrifice f- your your immediate uh, joy for your, ex- you know, for your, you know, long term joy. And I think if we're able to develop a sense of like, okay. What is my, what's in my self-interest? What's in my rational self-interest? What's in my, what is, for me at least, my rational self-interest is things that might not be happening today, but they might be happening in a few days mm-hmm. or a few weeks or a few months. So if that means like, oh, tonight, if I have to stay home and not hang out, instead, I might write, you know, a couple more blog posts and then think about, you know, publishing them in a few weeks. That might be, that might like hinder my self-desire. Which is having a good time, seeing people, living life. But ultimately, it serves my self-interest because it gets me to a different level to where I'll be able to do way more of that and to facilitate way more of that. And sometimes, no, it doesn't. It doesn't work out that way. But I would argue that sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Sometimes it's just the draw of the luck. In a lot of cases, you know, you're born in a third world country that has is destitute and has a really bad government. There's constant warfare. It's, many people have made it out of that situation. Many people have made it and came here, came to other countries and have succeeded. But, you know, sometimes it's like, okay, you have a lot going on in your life. How much can you juggle at one time without falling and tripping and, you know, breaking something? So that's kind of what I think about that. Yeah, I think this is kind of going back to – when we were speaking about balance and, you know, what you said about not being a dictator to yourself at the same time negotiating, you know, those two things can be dangerous. You know, mm-hmm. negotiating can lead to constant justifications mm-hmm. for behavior that you should not be justifying. Mm-hmm. You know, being a dictator to yourself can can just further your anxiety or your depression mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. being too hard on mm-hmm. yourself. Mm-hmm. And there's a balance to strike there, like with everything. I agree. And, um, you know, I think this – goes back to you know routine mm-hmm. and um having the discipline to adhere to a routine that is healthy that is simultaneously um aiming you in the direction you want to go to achieve your goals but letting you have a healthy social life letting you have healthy relationships um which you know you're never going to i feel like you're not going to achieve your goals without those things so mm. um yeah, again, happy medium to be found. Got you, got you. Yeah, I mean, I would I would argue um, that a lot of people's goals is happiness. You know, like my goal is happiness. That's what I want in my life. And well, um, who doesn't? Yeah, it's great. It's a great goal. And the thing about that goal um, that I've had trouble with recently, more so like the last like few months, is. Um, Happiness is a obviously it's subjective. Everybody has their own version of happiness, their own definition of happiness. But something that I've had an issue with is that okay. So two facts about life that are people can't avoid and can't deny: life is suffering, 
and there's a lot of malevolence and evil in the world. That's just a fact of, of life. So with that being said, what's the antidote to that? I don't – you know, because that, that right there, those two things strike me as um, two things that would get most people down if, 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 we, if we agree. And, you know, suffering is not evil, you know, but evil is evil um, in the sense of, you know, causing harm for harm's sake. But I think the antidote to, to suffering in life, whether it's a personal suffering, whether it's, you know, suffering uh, to groups of people that you know, um, and to evil in the world and the evil we face, and it could be the littlest evil like some, somebody in work manipulating you and using you for a goal or from a big evil to, you know, lying about certain things on a state level that causes wars. Um, I mean, this is, this is the thing, but I think the antidote, at least what I've kind of come to the point is like, Happiness is a is an is a afterthought. I think the antidote is finding meaning, and finding meaning in what we're doing every single day, and finding meaning in what in how we're acting and how we're proposing. Because happiness is a after effect of meaning. You don't have happiness without meaning. I don't think you can. At least in my opinion, um, I think we need to have some meaning, and it needs to be um, based on our own terms, and we have to figure it out. But it, it, it can't it, – we can't – I mean if we become happy – this is kind of – this is my last point. If we become happy, uh, wow, that's great. We should be really ha really fortunate and really congratulatory to ourselves that we were able to achieve that. But in many cases, I feel like some people have certain, certain things that it's just hard to be happy. I know people personally that it's just hard for them to be happy. And um, like so for instance, I have two – Two uncles that both have multiple sclerosis and as most people know, multiple sclerosis is a degenerative nerve disease that burns off the nerve endings and pretty much you become um, a complete uh, – completely unable to move, uh, complete uh, paraplegic. And um, you know, my uncle used to play tennis, run around with his kids. In a matter of six months, he was in a wheelchair. A year and a half after that, he's, he's in the bed. So when I go and see him and, and this is where – this is where one of my points come into this. When I go see him and go talk to him, it's hard for me to articulate what I feel every day because I, I honestly I – do, I do have meaning in my life right now. I honestly do have a sense of happiness in my life. But it's hard to articulate to people when they're suffering and it's hard to articulate to the people when they're, when they're the victims of evil. So I think we, we need to find a way to articulate the importance of meaning and the little – I mean – I have a hard time finding a way to speak to them without finding um, issue with the way I'm doing it. Okay. Um, I think I'm just a little confused then. Go ahead. So ask some questions. I think the first part is – so you start off like with the foundation that life is suffering. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like, Traditional Buddhist. So what, what exactly like – like all of life is just meant to be suffered no, or no. that so, so, you need to suffer so, before you find your meaning? Well, no. So uh, you can – you can. so some, this is very interesting actually. This kind of gets into something I wanted to talk about. Um, so suffering is going to happen to everybody in their life. Everybody will eventually not be in existence anymore. Everybody will eventually die. That's where the first steps of anxiety come in, yeah. <laughs> realizing that you're a mortal being and you're here and in, not indefinitely. You're here for a certain amount of time. So the, the, the way to get depressed and have anxiety about that is to realize that and just feel like you never have enough time versus finding meaning in that and saying, okay, I only have X amount of years on this earth. So if I only have X amount of years on this earth, shouldn't I make it 
the best amount of years possible. Isn't there an argument there that maybe what I do for my what what I do for myself in terms of my flourishing will get me there? I mean, um, you know, this kind of leads towards you know a topic of nihilism, and this is something that where a lot of depressed people get to, and a lot of people feel uh, like they're at. You know, uh, in the will to power, Nietzsche mentioned that you know nihilism, you know, the radical re- repudiation of values, meaning, and desirability. You know, uh, you know, the highest values devaluate themselves, you know, and, um, you talked about, you know, do we find meaning after suffering or is it like that? Some people, so like Viktor Frankl, who suffered uh, the Holocaust, wrote the book Man's Search for Meaning. Um, he talked about nihilism in his experience and he said, uh, nihilism as his experience is the actual existence or existential sense of meaningless and the futility of life. It's not a product, product of intellectual theory. So, but this is somebody who found meaning in their suffering, through their suffering, found meaning to go out there and to become a psychotherapist and to teach people how to recover from traumatic events and traumatic things. So you can see what Viktor Frankl did and he used his experiences, he used his suffering to to write a book that changed a lot of people's lives, including my own. So I think we have to be careful when we say that, you know, suffering, I'm not saying suffering is good. I'm not going to go as far as Nietzsche and say suffering is the greatest good in life. That's not one of Nietzsche's points was because once you can realize that you're, you have, you have the ability to, to love. It's called, uh, amor fati, which is, uh, Latin or for, uh, love of fate. It's, it's the idea that, well, you know, this is, this is what's going to happen in my life. Things are going to go wrong. Things are going to go bad. Things are going to go good. They're going to be ups and downs, but I just have to love the fate of it all. I just have to love the way this is going to go. And that's something Nietzsche talked about. And I'm not necessarily saying I agree with that. But I think, you know, we can't allow ourselves to find, you know, lose meaning and lose values because the moment that happens is the moment I think depression kind of becomes full encompassing and it starts like stopping. We stop becoming high functional depressives. We become just depressives. Just to introduce another perspective, Virgil, I think my interpretation of what you mean when you say life is suffering is that – Every life, every um, person that's born or yanked out of non-existence is guaranteed pain. You're guaranteed to st- – whether it's stubbing your toe, whether it's chronic clinical depression, whether it's you know some sort of oppressive force in your life, you're guaranteed to, to have pain and experience pain. And pain can be lasting whereas happiness is not guaranteed pleasure is not guaranteed mm-hmm. to every person and it's often fleeting and mm-hmm. uh very of very much of the moment and um you know so i think that there there's kind of an asymmetry between the power of suffering and mm-hmm. the power of pleasure within your life and i mm-hmm. think that you know i i would i would agree with virgil's conclusion that um you know the the only real I think the only sensible way to to respond to that is to uh, try because that's the only choice you have to try to find happiness, to recognize that you only have a very, very, very limited amount of time on this earth and uh, to maximize that. Now, going back to meaning, mm-hmm. uh, to me, you know, I, I it's interesting for me to look to um, – you know, the statements of people who are near death or on their deathbeds and what they say about their life, what they regret versus what they wish they could do more of. Mm-hmm. And I think universally or, you know, a, a, at least a, a consistent theme is that they um, they never regret the time they spend with their family and friends mm-hmm. and the people who they de- who meant 
a lot to them, who they loved. And if they have any regrets, it's usually that they didn't spend more time doing that. So I think, um, you know, in a very broad sense, a way to combat a lot of the depressive forces, whether it be mm-hmm. anxiety or whatever, uh, in our lives is to, you know, ignore Facebook, ignore Instagram, ignore, uh, you know, the internet mm. in general, spend more time developing relationships, um, keeping them going, call your friends, call your mom, um, spend time with people, just be open to having discussions with them. And I think through that, uh, I think that's a very healthy way to find meaning. I think that's a very healthy way to um, live a fulfilling life where when you're on your deathbed, uh, you won't have as many regrets as other people. Mm-hmm. Sudo? Um, I agree with uh, Misha and I um, agree with what you said. I was just a little confused on the whole life is suffering. Like, yeah. was that just the bad thing? or like, Well, I mean, that's just, that's, but, just, that's just a fact of life. Yeah, and I see yeah. where you're coming but from. The, the, but that. the bad, because suffering isn't necessarily bad or good. Suffering just is. You know, tornado is not evil. That's true. But, you know, somebody you know, killing a group of people is. Yeah. Can we, you say a tornado is bad, though? Well, so a tornado, so tornado can – so a tornado can – so suffering, you know, can happen. A tornado is bad, of course. You can objectively say that. But, you know, evil can lead to suffering and usually does. Yeah. So we have to be careful and make, make a complete distinction between suffering and evil and understanding its effects in our lives. Because if we don't separate them, we're going to feel that some of our suffering – might be because it might be evil because of caused by evil or because of other causes versus internal causes. And this kind of goes into um, – I used to be a student of Stoicism for a while, reading a lot of Stoicism uh, a couple of years ago. And one of the things they talk about is an understanding and you know, basically a big part of Stoicism is realizing and understanding by using your reasoning and logic and, and all this stuff – how to remove um, negative emotions from your life and not necessarily – so like if somebody passes away, they don't say, oh, don't grieve. They say grieve but don't let it control you. Don't yeah. let the grief control you. Don't let the grief cause you to do things you don't want to do. But a big thing in Stoicism and the most important thing that I can take from Stoicism and I apply to my life every single day is the point that there are things that are in our control and there are things that are not in, in our control and we have to understand what, the differentiate between what's in our control and what's in our not in our control. But that break that down a little more. What's in our immediate control and what's not in our immediate control? You know, I might have some some say when I'm a child to where I can go to school, but not really. If my parents want to send me to, you know, to public, yeah. you know private schools, I have a, sort of a say, but not, not really. Um, but when you become an adult, you tend to have more agency. You tend to have more ability of your choices. So you tend to have uh, – Tend to have this stuff. So, but you know, the main thing that I that I worry about with sometimes with depression and anxiety, and, and you know what it could lead to, it could lead to a lot of terrible things, and you know, ultimately it could really lead to a lot of uh, negative feelings that that continue to alienate people further and further. Yeah, I mean, um, just pointing out one specific thing. I mentioned social mm-hmm. media earlier, yes. and I'm you know. A hypocritical anti-social media <laughs> advocate. Yeah, uh, I, I should are. spend less time on Twitter, but I think that you know the the great irony of of our generation is that we're more globalized, more mm. connected 
than ever through the internet primarily, yet people feel more isolated than ever, which is, um, I think really telling about, um, how, you know, this sort of instant gratification through social media, just endless scrolling, you know, this kind of endless, Mm. um, flick of, of pleasure or pain or mm-hmm. anger. It's just kind of this little rush that we get every yes. time we see a new post. And, um, and you know, that's kind of the same sort of feeling with pornography. It's kind of mm-hmm. this instant de- on demand yeah. gratification exactly. that is, will not only never lead to long-term happiness, mm-hmm. but will be corrosive to that end. Yep. And um, I think that those, those things encourage us to isolate ourselves. And it's why, part of the reason a big part of the reason why we're feeling more alone as a society Mm. and um and so yeah i would just uh in in terms of a just very feasible simple solution Mm. one of one of many potential ones is just spend less time or no time on social media on the internet um and just live life like like they did in in the sixties or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> Be a hippie. Yeah, right. Keep. Yeah. I think like at least what helped me the most, um, when uh, um when I was like going through like my little fits and stuff was you know, I had to calm down and I think for different people it helps like I didn't want to go to my family and like because that was the source of where like the depression and stuff mm-hmm. and anxiety were coming from and I know they love me and stuff, but, like, they both grew up in, like, east side Detroit. So, like, they had to work, and they lived a hard life. But they afforded me time to, like, think, like, what do I want? And so I think sometimes you also have to look inside of you and go, like, this is what I want out of life. How can I accomplish it? And then make small steps towards it, you know. I started running on Wednesday. Mm. You know, I'll start again next Monday. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. exactly, exactly, and you know, I think uh, the other point I like to, to close on is just, you know, sometimes through our anxiety, through our depression, we can just you know gain a general resentment. And um, you know, one of Nietzsche's concepts I mentioned Nietzsche earlier. Nietzsche's concept of resentment, which is French, and it's pretty close to resentment in English, um, but it's more bitter. It's more like toxic and more seething, and it usually it's bottled up over time. You know, he used the re- resentment in the context of developing his uh, idea of master and slave morality and beyond, you know, pretty much in Beyond Good and Evil and then in the genealogy of morals. And, you know, basically master morality is the morality of the vigorous, the confident, the life-loving, the strong. It's the morality of those who love adventure and delight in creativity and their own sense of purple- purposeness and assertiveness. You know, slave morality is the morality of the weak, the humble, those who feel victimized and afraid to venture forth in the big bad world. You know, uh, he said that weaklings are chronically passive and mostly because they're afraid of the strong. As a result, the weak feel frustrated. They can't get to what they want out of life, you know, like we talked about today. They become envious of other people. They become uh, – they secretly start to hate themselves for being so weak and cowardly. But, you know, one can't, one can't stay hating, you know, believing that you hate – you're, you're hateful. So they invert it. You know, they, they rationalize. They rationalize that tells them that they're good – and moral because they're weak and humble and passive. You know, and patience is a virtue. And they say humility and obedience is a virtue. So Nietzsche was pointing out that this type of thing over time will create 
a point where a person will just continue to hate themselves, continue to resent society, continue to resent the world and not really focus on the problem, which might be something internal, which might be something like you, you pointed at that it might be family you have to separate yourself from. It might be a thought within you that you might have to separate yourself from. Maybe you're bigoted. Maybe you, you have a hateful feelings towards other people. Maybe you have hateful feelings towards yourself. And we need to stop having resentment towards things. Find out what's in our what's in our uh, interest. You know what. Find out what's in our control. What's not in our control, and the things that are not in control, we have to find out a way not to become resentful and to facilitate all the all that embodies the concept of resentment. So, uh, thank you guys for coming today. I really had a wonderful conversation. I'm so happy you could do this. No problem, Virgil. Thank you for having us. Of course. Yeah. Thank you, Virgil. Thank you, Sudo. Like, far from uh, suffering, this was a pleasure. Oh, definitely. <laughs> 100%. <laughs>